You're listening to Wealth Tech on Deck, a podcast about the future of wealth management technology, brought to you by Life Yield. Here's your host, Jack Sherry. Welcome to Wealth Tech on Deck. I'm so glad you could join us for this conversation. Our podcasts take place each week with industry leaders sharing their point of view on a variety of topics around the confluence of human and digital advice today and where it's headed in the future. Uh, We cover three areas, a little bit about our guests' background and how they found their way to be on the show. We then talk about what they're working on now, especially around human and and digital advice. And we close with what we see coming in the future. So today we're talking with Dr. Daniel Crosby. Dr. Crosby is the Chief Behavioral Officer at Orion Advisor Solutions. Daniel, thanks for joining us today. Welcome. Jack, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. So, um, Daniel, for most of our podcasts, we speak to C-suite level execs who are focused on strategy, wealth tech products and platforms, their distribution strategy. But today we're talking with you as a C-suite player who has a little different title, Chief Behavioral Officer. So please tell us about your journey and provide a high level review of how you wound up as the CBO. Yeah. So uh, again, great to be here. So my journey is, I think, probably atypical of most journeys within the financial services space. I actually am a clinician by training. I got a PhD in clinical psychology uh, with an eye toward helping folks with eating disorders. So it's sort of an atypical path to be where I am today. But I discovered about three years into my doctoral program that while I really, really enjoyed thinking deeply about why people do the things that they do, I didn't necessarily enjoy doing that in a medical context. And so about year three of a five-year program, I went to my dad, who was and is a, a financial advisor. And I said, Dad, you know, I'm having some misgivings about, you know, my chosen path. I love psychology, but but I'm looking for a non-medical, non-clinical application of it. And he said, well, you know, there's there's tons of psychology in my work. And I said, you know, what are you what are you talking about? Like, you're you know, you're a numbers guy, you know, think I'm whatever at the time, 26. So I'm like, no, you're a numbers guy. You're an analytical guy. You're a money guy. There's no psychology there. And he said, you know, well, not so fast. So he points me to a number of great books, a number of classics, and I begin this journey of understanding the psychology of wealth, the psychology of enough, the psychology of financial markets, absolutely fell in love with it. And so, you know, long story short, started with a firm, a consulting firm here in Atlanta, working inside of banks, but quickly spun out and started my own consulting firm. At the ripe old age of 29, in the middle of the Great Recession, and said, I want to help people like my dad. You know, people like Uh my dad who are financial advisors. My dad lives in North Alabama. So, you know, people who are doing great work helping everyday clients achieve great investment outcomes, but doing so without access to the ivory tower of academia. They needed sort of an in between, a translator between the ivory tower and the boots on the ground. And so I've spent my career trying to be that translator. Great. That's fascinating. I did not know that. So how did you go from, at the ripe age of 29, how did you go from your own consulting practice? To, I know you start, did a lot of work with Brinker. Maybe there was something before that. And of course, now Brinker is part of the larger Orion organization. So talk a little bit about that transition. And, and then also, if you talk a little bit about what a chief behavioral officer does. 
Yeah. So the the transition was very organic. And I mean, it, it really all traces back to one single engagement. You know, money's tight in the Great Recession. People aren't spending a ton on value add programs. I'm young. I'm unproven. And I was hassling various people to try and get a chance to try and get a foot in the door. And so finally, someone said yes to me. Basically, I said, uh, look, I can do a great job for you. Give me a chance. I know you, you know, kind of like, I know you're blowing me off, <laughs> but, you know, please <laughs> give me a chance. I'll fly up there on my own dime. I'll speak to your folks. And that's what I did. They said, okay. So they said, okay, fly up to Boston. You're going to present to a couple hundred uh, advisors. If we like it, we'll, you know, bring you in to do some work with us. If we don't, stop bugging me, kid. And so, you know, I flew up to Boston. Quite serendipitously, I met Ali McCarthy, who quickly then became the chief marketing officer at Brinker and brought me over to Brinker based on the strength that we had done at, at her previous organization. Ali brought me to Brinker, where Chuck Widger, Brinker's founder, was actually, as luck would have it, in the very early stages of writing a book on how to use mental accounting and other psychological frameworks to structure asset management in a way that kept investors in their seats. So got to meet Chuck early on, co-authored a book with him, and then was was a part of the Brinker team when we got acquired by Orion. And that's just been an absolute dream. Eric Clark and I share a vision uh, for how behavioral finance can be infused into technology and it's been a, it's been a wonderful partnership. So, just for our audience, in terms of timeline, what's when did you first meet up with that fateful date in Boston when you started talking about this stuff? And then we'll get into what you're doing today. But talk a little bit about just the timeline, just so there's a point of reference as to how this evolved. Yeah, so that would have been about early 2010, I think. So, like okay. early 2010, I worked with Brinker externally for like seven years. I mean, I was just mm -hmm. uh, sort of a, a regular contributor, regular consultant, but had a, a, you know, two handfuls of other clients, Brinker being, you know, one of the bigger clients. So worked with Brinker closely for seven years, came inside at Brinker, you know, I guess about three years ago when they were looking to do some more dedicated behavioral finance work. And then we were, of course, uh, acquired by Orion about about a year ago. So I have the good fortune of knowing Chuck Widger for at least, I don't know, 25, 30 years, long time. And uh, Eric, who I've gotten to know over the past few years, two of the real stalwarts in our industry, two really fine human beings and clear vision and understanding of what's important. So talk a little bit about that dynamic, the work you did with Chuck in writing the book, the work you're now doing with Eric. And, and I know it's part of the large organization, but it always st starts from the top. And clearly they got it early on and brought you in. And, and then now you're playing a central role. And then we'll get into a little bit about what you do day to day currently, but a little bit about that transition of two two of the people I admire most in our industry. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll begin with the Chuck partnership. You know, Chuck, by the time that I had met Chuck, Chuck had been in the industry for about 30 years. And Chuck's a very intelligent guy. He's a lawyer by education. And he had just learned a ton through the process of, of just being in the trenches for, for three decades. He didn't always know what to call it, though, right? Like he had observed various psychological phenomena and he'd noticed tendencies in investors and had noticed how the way that they structured their product brought about different outcomes in clients. 
but didn't always have sort of the research backing to know what the formal technical term for it was or what the research said about it. So my partnership with Chuck was sort of a beautiful marriage of theory and practice, I being the, the theory and he being the grizzled veteran, as it were. In terms of Eric, you know, Eric has this vision to think that we can understand clients better than they understand themselves. There's actually cool research that shows that your coworkers are a better predictor of your behavior than you are, right? So we see really interesting. We see each of you know, you know, we examine our own behavior sort of through a glass darkly. We sort of strain all of our perceptions about who we are and what we're likely to do through a self-serving lens. Uh, whereas our, our our coworkers and our loved ones don't have any need to see us through sort of rose-colored glasses. And so there's reason to believe, and the evidence suggests, that other people can know you better than you know yourself. And, and we believe that's possible for advisors to, to know their clients' financial behaviors uh, better than the clients themselves can know and anticipate those things. So that's the mm-hmm. mission that we're on at Orion to try and understand our clients better than anyone in the business and and help them achieve great things. Well, I would argue you guys are well ahead of the rest of behavioral finance is playing an increasingly prominent role. And we're going to shift our discussion now to the technology. After all, this is Wealth Tech on Deck. So some of our listeners might be wondering, why are we talking about psychology? And I know you have an answer for that. And I know you've done some interesting work recently released a capability, I'm not sure how to characterize it, with um, doing some work with Hidden Levers, a recent acquisition with uh, with Orion around risk management. So talk a little bit about what a CBO, a chief behavioral officer does in terms of translating theory into practice as as in technology in, in terms of Hidden Levers. And it may go beyond that. I'm imagining it does. Yeah, it does. It does. So really, I'm tasked with with three things. They call it the three T's. We've got training, tools, and technology. So we have an advisor education arm called the Center for Outcomes, where we educate advisors on everything from how to have a conversation with your clients that sticks and leads them to implement your best advice, to how to hire great people, to how to profile a client, you know, and everything in between. So I am one of the key parts of that educational outreach program, the Center for Outcomes. But we also want to develop new tools. You know, you talked about our new risk tolerance questionnaire called the 3D risk tolerance questionnaire. It measures a dimension of risk that's not commonly measured in the industry, and that's risk composure. So without going off on too hard of a tangent, risk tolerance is sort of your long-term willingness to make risk-reward trade-offs. Everybody measures that. Risk capacity is your ability to take risk based on the level of your goals, your accumulated wealth, your timeline, these sorts of things. And then risk composure is the likelihood of emotion entering the equation. Uh, It's effectively how likely is emotion to skew your long-term attitudes toward risk-reward trade-offs. So there's not a lot of folks measuring this risk composure. We're measuring it, and it gives us insights from everything into you know, do I want to work with this client in the first place? You know, I think that advisors, one of the things that they can do is be thoughtful and selective about who they choose to partner with. So we give them some insights there and we let them know, you know, how difficult is it going to be for this person to stay the course? 
If things do get choppy, who among your clientele is likely to need a, a helping hand or an outreach? So all of that stuff factors in, oh, finally, of course, what sort of allocation is going to be optimal for this client? Because we think in terms of anxiety-adjusted returns and not just simple risk-adjusted returns. A lot of times, I think as an industry, we go for sort of this spreadsheet optimal, like in a vacuum, what's the optimal allocation for this client? Well, we know that people don't live on spreadsheets. They live in the real world and it's messy and emotional. So we want to make allocations on behalf of our clients that are real world optimal and not spreadsheet optimal. So I think you see how just introducing this one element of measuring human behavior and human psychology into an industry standard, which is the risk tolerance questionnaire, can give a, a person a great deal of insight into who, who they're sitting across the table from. So let me see if I can translate and correct me if I'm wrong. What I'm hearing is you're looking at risk from a variety of different angles, risk composure being distinctive, at least at this point, until others try to copy you. But uh, the idea is to look at risk from a variety of angles and then using, I'm assuming you use hidden levers to then implement that or address those concerns so that the portfolio, the asset allocation, the holdings are consistent with what you've determined from a risk standpoint. Am I, am I getting that right? You got it. You nailed it. That's great. And is anyone else doing anything like I've, I've not heard of anything close to this. So tell me. So there are some in Europe. So there are folks in Europe that are doing this well. I'll say as a general nod to Western Europe, they're ahead of the game with respect to behavioral finance. They've been more receptive to it. Their educational institutions have opened up and, and created sort of dedicated behavioral finance programs before we in the U.S. have. So we're not the only ones doing it in the world, but no one with more than 1% market share is measuring risk composure as a standalone. And so we think we have an opportunity to you know, just add a new dimension to the conversation and have it reach a lot of lives and, and impact a lot of souls in, in a short amount of time. This is really fascinating. I always love to hear something new, different, and uh, as important as this sounds, because at the end of the day, investing assets is, a, is an emotional proposition. It is not a logical, theoretically, it's logical, but it's in my over 30 years, almost 40 years, I haven't seen that yet where people are logical when it comes to investing. They buy high, sell low, is rampant to this day. Mm-hmm. So how, how does that manifest? So I've gone through the process of this tool. How does an advisor apply? Is it something that's used to keep them on track? Talk a little bit about what that, how that plays out in reality between advisor and client. Well, there's a couple of ways, right? So one of the things that we can do is make the client aware of this tendency from the outset. You know, I think a lot of people, Morningstar has done great research. They talked about, you know, all the different things that an advisor does, and then they asked the client to sort of rank them in terms of their relative importance. Well, we know from the research that without a doubt, it's not close. The biggest value that an advisor adds is keeping her clients in their seat. Like the biggest value that an advisor adds is behavioral coaching, emotional management, decisional coaching. There's a very robust body of literature on that. Well, so that's point A. But point B is from the Morningstar research, we know that that is the thing that clients think that they need least. Interesting. They're really looking for eye-popping returns, right? They think they've hired, you know, the Warren Buffett of 
wherever they're from, right? So they think they're getting an investment manager. What they've really gotten is a behavioral manager. Interesting. And so one of the things that the, the composure element allows us to do is to have that conversation early on and make them aware of the centrality of managing emotions to achieving their goals. Now, the other thing we can do is known in the psych literature as pre-commitment, right? So pre-commitment, committing in advance in that cold emotional state. Okay, Daniel, you know you're prone to freak out a little bit when things get choppy. You know that about yourself now. There's going to come a time when you're going to come to right. me, Jack, right. your advisor, and you're going to say, Jack, sell everything. You know, I right. want you to commit now that when that time comes, you won't do that. Now, it sounds like a simple thing, like crazy simple. It is simple. And yet it's powerful. The impact it has on behavior is powerful because what you can do is say, you know, in the, on that day when I come to you, say, hey, Daniel, like we knew that there would be days like this, right? We knew that there would be days like this. And when you were in your right mind, effectively, when you were in a cooler, calmer place, you knew that there right. would be days like this. And we promised that we wouldn't do this, right? So it allows you to educate them. It allows you to pre-commit them. And then the next thing I would say is that it allows you to know who needs a helping hand. Uh, do you know who needs to be reached out to? So Betterment, the robo-advisor, did some fascinating research a few years ago. They were sending blanket messages on tough days in the market. We're Here we are on July 8th. The market's down about a percent and a half today. So I'm sure there are people who are panicked. So what Betterment would do on days like this is they would send out an email blast to all of their customers and say, hey, don't panic, stay the course. We knew there would be days like this. And what they found is that it was actually negative because the preponderance of their clients weren't worried, right? Like many, many of their yes. clients weren't worried. And so when they got this email that said, hey, there, there's nothing to worry about, they're like, oh God, like what, <laughs> you know, what should I be worrying about? So- right. This allows us to segment and serve different parts of the client population. You know, on days like today, when the markets are a little choppy, you can reach out to just your most easily spooked clientele. You don't have to reach out to every single person and say, hey, there's nothing to worry about. Because what you're really doing is planting seeds of doubt in the minds of people who weren't worried in the first place. So this really does allow for some customization and, and some catering of financial planning and advice, which we also think is powerful. Yeah, I'm sure you've seen the Dalbar studies over the years of uh, that investors underperform the markets consistently and by a lot because they're freaking out or what have you. This really sounds, I read about it not too long ago when you, you all announced it, but it's even cooler than I thought. Congratulations. It's really, I think, an important step. So let's talk a little bit about given this, and I've, I've always been thinking that at some point behavioral finance and actual finance would find their way together. And clearly that's on its way. And I know of a number of others, others we've had as guests. I know, I think you know, may know um, Dr. Michael Learsh, who's at Wells Fargo. He's done a lot of work in terms of building a platform. We've had some others on the show that have talked about behavioral finance and how important that is. So where does it all go? Where are we headed? At least uh, you can't predict for the industry, but you can for your organization. So where do you see this leading? I think there's really three places that, that it leads, right? And each one of them is more powerful than the next. So I talked about my three T's earlier. I'll talk about three E's now. So there's sort of three E's that are necessary to change behavior. And the first is education. So this is kind of where we are today, 
we as an industry are broadly interested in behavioral finance. People are reading books like mine and they're listening to folks like myself and Michael Leersh, who, who you talked about. They're learning about bias. They're learning about decision making. This is good, right? Education is the first step. Knowing that these things exist, being able to educate our clients about them and, and educate ourselves about them. But here's where it gets a little unpopular. Most people think that that is sufficient, right? Like if we know about these things, then we're, we're all set. Uh, Daniel Kahneman, who won a Nobel Prize for his pioneering research into behavioral finance, has said he's no better than the next person at avoiding bias. And I mean, he's the guy who discovered them all, right? I mean, this is a Nobel Prize winning psychologist saying, my awareness of my proneness to bias does little to nothing to insulate me from actually falling prey to bias. And he's right. You know, we actually see this in the literature, like you see it all over the place. Doctors and nurses smoke at a much higher rate than the average population. These folks spend their whole lives telling people not to smoke, and then they go home and smoke. <laughs> I was not aware of that. The general population, 13% smokers, nurses, 24% smokers, doctors, 17% smokers. Wow. Right? Wow. And, but we see this all over the place. We see that advisors help their clients to make finan great financial decisions. The average person who has a long-term relationship with an advisor has nearly three times the wealth of their peers who get no advice, even when you hold things constant like education level, income, socioeconomic status, and things like this. But then when advisors come to make decisions for their own money, they're just as flawed and irrational as the next person. So education is a foundational layer. It's necessary, but not sufficient. The next layer we need to work to is environment, right? Like putting our clients, like I talked about earlier, in that anxiety-adjusted optimal portfolio. We need them to have, <laughs> we need them to live in a world that is reflective of their psychology. And there's not a lot of that going on, I think, right now. So we, we have work to do as an industry to make sure that the environment in which investors move move around in is more conducive to their success than it is today. And then the last one is encouragement, which I'll call talking someone off the ledge or sort of that, what the research calls just-in-time advice. So there's a lot of people clamoring for financial education in like in high schools, for instance. That's okay. And it's like, this is the most unpopular thing in the world to say. But when we look at the, at the forgetting curve, most people forget things that they learn in a classroom within three days. And so you can teach, you know, 16-year-olds all about interest rates and the Federal Reserve and, and the power of compounding and things like that. And by the weekend, it'll be out the other ear. And that's no knock on young people. That's just how, you know, our minds work. Sure. in time advice or encouragement, this is where we can bake it into the technology. So when I'm in my Orion portal and I, and I want to make a, a sell decision, a little pop-up comes up and says, hey there, Daniel, here's the tax consequences of what you're about to do, right? Boom, right in that moment, right? Or, hey, I'm about to sell. 
Daniel, are you sure you want to sell? Because, you know, we know behaviorally that the more people make adjustments to their portfolio, the worse they tend to do across 19 different countries. Huh. Right. That's more powerful when it's baked into technology and it's real time than me learning a lesson from, you know, someone droning on someone like me with a Ph.D. droning on in a, in a high school or college course when you're thinking about what party you're going to that weekend or the cute person in front of you. So these three things that we need, we need all three legs. We need to educate clients and advisors about the realities of behavioral finance. We need the right environment, the right portfolio mix for them. But we also need that encouragement that's happening just in time to educate people when they're on the precipice of making a decision. Well, this is fascinating. And I will invite you back as uh sooner than later, because I'd love to hear more. And I'm sure you're going to learn a lot as you go, because this is relatively new. And I, I would imagine just uh, based on what I know about you, Daniel, you'll, you'll be learning as you go and adjusting and refining and uh, and making it better. So thanks for sharing that. And let's do this again sooner than later uh, to see how it goes. So in an effort to stay within our proposed time frame, why don't you share three things that uh, you think our audience would benefit from as, as takeaways? You've shared a lot, but uh, if you could pick three things that would be useful for our listeners, please do. Yeah. So I think the first thing to know is that behavioral finance is a mirror and not a window, right? So behavioral finance, a lot of folks look at it as a mirror onto other people's behavior. Like, why does Jack do these silly things? Or, you know, yes, my wife or my clients totally do these things. I think real practitioners of behavioral finance read books like mine and go, this is about me, right? This is about me. What can I learn? The second thing is is like the first, right? The second thing is a little bit like the first is knowing that you are not special. All of the things that you learn about, these aren't for other people. They pertain to you too. So learn about human psychology in a way that says, you know, this, this pertains to me too. And then the last thing I would say, perhaps the contrarian in me says, none of this matters very much, right? None of this money stuff that we spend all our time wringing our hands and talking about is very important in the grand scheme of life. So get enough money and get enough comfort to do what you need to do to cover your basics. And then go focus on bigger, better things that are that are more enriching and more lasting uh, than trying to stack gold coins. So I love to talk about money, but ultimately it's a it's a vehicle to doing things that matter more than making lots of money. I could not agree more. And uh, again, I look forward to our next conversation. This has been fascinating. So uh, as we close this session and, and as we do each week with our guests, um, why don't we shift it a bit, talking about what's important in life. So what's important in your life outside of work? What are you particularly passionate about or do that people might find interesting or surprising? Well, I've got two guitars behind me here that I'm not as good at playing as I wish I were. But the biggest rocks in my life are my family. I have, I have three young children. I have a wonderful wife and trying to be a good husband and father is, is number one for me. I've spent the pandemic practicing guitar in a way that I haven't since I was 16 and so that's been another area of growth and, and engagement for me. And then last thing is my ultimate goal in life is to write a book on helping people find meaning. I think that my meaning in life is to help other people find their meaning. 
And so people kind of laugh when I say I want to write a book on the meaning of life, but I'm not joking. And that's that's really kind of what that's my ultimate push and my ultimate goal. Great. I would like to learn more about that as well. But uh, thanks for sharing that. And uh, really a lot of uh, wonderful content here. So thanks so much for this this conversation. And I'd like to turn to our listening audience and uh as you know, our focus is wealth tech industry execs. This is a slight departure in that uh, Daniel's trying to figure out how to help us as industry execs help advisors and investors do better. So uh, as part of this effort to have this ongoing conversation, we now have over 1,100 subscribers, a pretty narrow niche audience that we were trying to appeal to. Turns out it was much larger than than expected. So thank you all for listening in. And uh, as uh, you're going about your uh, day-to-day, if, if you find the podcast to be enjoyable and useful, please rate, review, and subscribe and or share what we're doing here at Wealth Tech on Deck. We're available wherever uh, you get your podcasts. And Daniel, thanks again. This was a, a real pleasure, and I look forward to the next time. Until then, Jack. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wealth Tech on Deck, our ongoing conversation about improving financial outcomes for all. This podcast is brought to you by Life Yield and produced by Reverb. Subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with our host, Jack Sherry, on LinkedIn and Twitter. And for more information about our perspective on the future of financial advice, visit our website at lifeyield.com.